Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. This is episode 73, I'm Sean, and we are progressing ever closer to Essen, and these are our next 12 games we're going to look at. Hello Sean, hello everyone, Ronan here. You're very welcome to more of our Guessing About Games, which we like to call a treasure hunt, but really it's just a bunch of guessy pants. We are guessy pants, and we do have to state, as always Ronan, that we are completely guessing from afar. We have not played any of these titles, and we may well be wrong in our guesses about them. Yes, indeed. These are strictly previews. Sean, I'm quite excited about this 12. There's a lot of treasures coming up. Makes a change from your, your recent efforts. I am renewed. I am full of vigour. Ta-da! That's <laughs> a man. nice noise. Thank you very much. <laughs> but we're going to crack straight on with the previews, but Sean... Ronan, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go to the Dice Tower itself and the Dice Tower Network, where you can find news and reviews and many more about our beloved board gaming hobby. If you wish to download our episodes, please go to Podbean itself, Stitcher and iTunes. Right, here we go. We are going to lead it off with Ronan and Lagranca. Lagranca, the dice game, No Siesta. This is from Stronghold Games. One to four players, a 45-minute dice game. It's from, as discussed previously, the designer Oda, who also designed the, the big daddy game Lagranca, and also Solarius Mission, which is coming out at this essence. How do you play it? It's similarly themed to the base game of La Granca in that you are running a farm and you're going to be producing some produce, as you do, and you're going to be taking that to markets and you're going to be exporting it and you're trying to score points over a series of rounds. You roll dice equal to number of players plus one. Then everyone drafts one dice. Then the start player rolls them all again. Everyone drafts one more dice. And then you roll the last dice again and everyone takes that as income. When you take that income, you mark it as revenue on a little board in front of you. You have a limited number of discs and you just place a disc on the thing that you've chosen, be it olive or corn or grape or a different type of animal. And those are the things they give you, basically goods from your farm, animals you can put in your farm. You can get a hat, which will help you on the CCS track or actual silver for money. What are you going to use them for? So you've got this resource board. You've also got a pad of paper and you're going to mark off as you get resources. And there are several different areas to do there. So, for example, you can use your silver to build a barn roof. And then once you complete that, that will give you one off powers. And there's different sections of the barn roof you can do as again in the base game. You can hire helpers for various things and those will give you in-game powers as you go. And they're really part of the uniqueness of your own strategy is what helpers you're taking to help you along the game. If you're able to get three of one thing in one go, you're able to get a long distance delivery going. That'll get you some points. You can load up carts for end game scoring that you're going to take to the market. You've also got the ability to store some goods for minor end game VP right at the end. And as I said, the hat's gone the siesta track and they are going to help you get more discs, the discs that mark revenue, because sometimes you're going to use the disc to mark something else. And then you can be able to take less revenue from the dice you're rolling. So by getting hats, you're mitigating against that turnover off. 
discs. There are also things that commodities you can get which will act as well goods should you ever need it. And at the end, there's kind of a point salad VP scoring for all the different bits and bobs you've done, gone to the market, got helpers, built your barn roof, long distance exports. So, Sean, it's kind of a condensed version of Lagranka, but there's still a little bit of heft to it. Okay, well, I haven't played Lagranka. I know you have, and you quite enjoyed it. Now, how much do you think this one sort of feels and has captured that essence of Lagranka? I think it's captured the essence. I think it helps with with the artwork on the scoring pad. It looks like you're bored. You do all those things in the game. You collect goods, you go to market, you, you export, but obviously they're all made slightly simpler. In Legrandka itself, you had these cards and they were multi-use. And there was a lot of thinking about how am I going to use these cards? Which area am I going to put them in? Trying to combo things up. This obviously, with the dice, although each dice result has got a separate use to it, you haven't got that real push-pull of, oh, should I make it a market grape? Or should it become a white grape or a red grape? It's more, it's a grape. Here's one or two or three bases I can put it. Which one am I going to go for? My initial worry with this one, Ronan, is my worry with all sort of dice rollers when you start bringing the economics into it, is that if you do have a poor roll and the dice aren't kind, or in this game, if uh, other players are doing a bit of negative drafting, how much is that going to hinder you and sort of railroad you down certain paths? Can you really explore? Ah, well, Sean, I think you've been lured in there by the idea of drafting, that you must be able to hate draft. This is what I love about the system they've put out there. Because you only know what the dice are now and what you're taking, it's going to be very difficult to hate draft because you don't know what the dice are going to show in the next round of drafting. And I think that's really clever. You know, Why waste my very limited actions to take something from you when the last die roll may bring that up anyway and you'll get it anyway? I think what they've done is forced you into positive actions rather than negative actions. So you're not sitting there scouring the boards of everyone else going, oh, I can't let him get silver. I can't let her get a donkey forget that no 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 take what you want to do be positive build your own thing and that's what i really like about the draft system yeah it does look like it has got interesting decisions with the use of those discs and what to spend your resources on it doesn't look like it's too so wide as you said in your intro that it's going to be lots of ap because you're going to know what you're going to be spending on that turn because the dice are almost going to kind of tell you to a degree i think the graphical design helps with that as well because it's very clear yeah, the graphical design, I, I mean, I hate the artwork in Lagranka, and I this is mirrors it, so I hate the artwork in this. I just find it really, really sort of pallid. Hate? Hate is very strong. I, it, it initially put me off Lagranka when I first looked at it, and I know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Yeah, I don't didn't like the artwork, so I kind of passed it by, and this, this kind of mirrors it. But knowing that what I know about Lagranka now has made me much more interested in this and much more accepting of it. It's good to accept that that's the path <laughs> to inner peace. I do love the whole helper thing as well. When you play, it gives you sort of a set of helpers to choose from to limit those lots of options. But when you go into advanced and you've played it a couple of times, it brings in other helpers and there's a draft of those from the middle. And I think that's going to add to the interactivity and the fact that we're playing with each other by which helpers are you after. I like that as well, that there's kind of an extension to it in a small box, a simple dice game, but not too simple. It reminds me of Zularetto, the dice game, but that was really, really simple, a similar sort of way to it, drafting in dice and marking on your pad, but much more extended and a proper game, Sean, in a small package. Yeah, and to be honest, Ronan, I'm going to mark this one down as a treasure. 
I have long wanted to play Lagranca, and this looks like a condensed version that will work with two players. Again, I'm banging on that drum, and yeah, this is a treasure for me. And it's a treasure for me, a dice game with brains with drafting, and I really like the, the big brother Lagranca game. So yeah, Lagranca, the dice game, no siesta, tick, tick, from myself and Sean. Ronan, we're off a slashing. Are we really? We are. <laughs> In company? Well, let's hope so. <laughs> because it plays, this game plays two to six players. It's The Last Friday from Ares Games, designed by Antonio Ferrara and Sebastiano Fiorillo. It is a game that is basically based on Friday the 13th films. And there is a slasher killing people at a holiday campsite. In the game, one player is going to be the slasher. And all the other players are going to be the campers at the holiday site. In a style very similar to Letters from Whitechapel or Fury of Dracula, which we've discussed previously on the show... The players playing the campers are going to be moving around the board, trying to get to safe havens in the form of cabins. And when discovered, a cabin is actually placed on the board. The maniac, who he was called in the game, he's is a maniac. Main. Keep going. Maniac on the floor. Nice, nice. Thanks. Well done. Well done, okay. you. You're not going to sing uh, all the way through every game of this. Let's do it. <laughs> the maniac is going to try and kill the campers. So what's going to happen? In the first chapter, the maniac is going to hunt the campers. Then it's going to flip around in the second chapter, and the campers are going to hunt the maniac. The person who catches the maniac, or is closest to at the end of the round, the maniac, it becomes the, what they call the predestined. In the third chapter, the maniac is going to look for the predestined, and the other campers are going to try to protect them. And in the fourth one, the predestined is basically going to try and kill the maniac, and the player is going to help them. A couple of little rules, corpses, block movement. Every three spaces, the maniac moves. They're going to reveal where they were. So it's not like Let's for My Chapel, where you just is completely hidden. And there's going to be special abilities for the campers to use and the maniacs to use. So, yeah, that's basically The Last Friday, Ronan. A hidden movement game with a slight tweak. I think you can't start talking about it without talking about the theme, about the look of the board, which I love, by the way. I don't know about you. The whole horror trappings, the blood everywhere. But it's not over the top, I don't feel. I don't think it's like just splash blood everywhere. The components and the board adds to the feel of being in that kind of 80s horror film. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has that feel to it. Also, with the reveals, very similar to a, a film of that genre. Like, you've got reveals uh, when certain tents are turned over, they reveal a dead body, and when the maniac moves into lit areas, it reveals him, and he has to reveal himself every three turns. So you always got a rough idea where the maniac is, which I think adds a really interesting twist. Especially in round one, the campers are scrabbling around looking for keys, not sure they are. That's very reminiscent as well of them sort of running around going, where's that, where's that? Looking in the wrong place, finding the body, screaming, ah, let's go over there. I like that it adds a bit more pressure to a genre which can be quite slow and and you're just waiting for that moment when you finally find the trail and then you can start doing things. In this one, they've, they've dotted little clues and little areas around the board to keep the 
tension and to keep the the pace of the game up and the other thing i really love about that is that on the board as the game goes on it seems like it's going to get tighter and tighter for the maniacs so it starts that they're on the loose and it's gonna be quite hard for the campers to get them but the campers can do stuff like put down bear traps which only the maniac will, will be affected by not them and put lanterns in to make more areas lit and it kind of creates that arc of the maniac feels more powerful to start with but the campers are reacting to his presence and building up their response and there seems to be sort of small counters to some of the main actions like the campers are trying to get to log cabins that's where they will be safe now the maniac can destroy the cabins and if he manages to destroy a couple of them all of a sudden he's got a secret passage that he can pop up in random places on the board which is a counter to what they're trying to do i even find that interesting yeah, for sure. He could swim across the lake and stuff. So even if you feel like you're on his trail, there are still options, which is why you need those bear traps and what have you. I also love that the method of play flips because sometimes it's saying letters of Whitechapel. You can play it and play a chapter and Jack hasn't been chat hasn't been caught. And then you start again and you're just doing the same thing again. Now, I do love that game, but you are doing the same thing and trying to find the trail. OK, then we're back doing the same pattern. I like that they've mixed it up with the two and the throw again. Yeah, now that brings me to my first slight issue, is that it has been reported from a few people who have played it, because it has been play-tested at Gen Con, and it's one of the issues I sort of looked at when I was reading the rules. Third chapter, it kind of feels a little bit redundant. It kind of feels like you're just prolonging the game slightly, you're elongating it for... for Expand not, for us, Sean. Tell us what the third chapter is and, and why that's the case. The maniac is looking for the predestined, and the other campers are trying to protect predestined. The maniac gets the predestined. That's not the end of the game. It still goes into the next chapter anyway. He just gets a bonus. So, yeah, it just feels like that was a little... It was just a step too far. Yeah, because the longer the maniacs run around for, the more clues they leave, and the more that the campers can set the board up and try and narrow them in. So what feels like it should be the maniac getting more powerful, the longer it goes on, actually the campers are getting more powerful. So the maniac doesn't really want to extend that round at all. And Yeah, definitely a funny feel to that, Sean. But I don't think it's an absolute polished gem. I don't think it's perfect by any means again it's one of those games that maybe as it's out in the world and gets played people will come up with ways of tweaking and finishing which as we always say from a smaller publisher you're not so fussed by but i like the genre i like the unique take on it i love the presentation so for me the last friday is a treasure yeah my only slight worry is that third chapter I love theming of the gear of it. It reminds me of the times myself and Ronan used to hire out the worst horror films and just watch them back to back throughout the night. That's a misspent youth, if ever there was one. Misspent youth, indeed. When we weren't playing football manager, I love. Uh, do you I mean championship manager, game. noob? <laughs> I was I was bringing it into the 2016 thing, and I love the genre. As anyone who listens to the show will know, I love Letters from Whitechapel, and to add a tweak to that, and a tweak that makes the game even more interesting, it's a treasure all the way. If I can get my dirty little mitts on this, it's coming home with me. Fantastic, and I will happily chase you down and eviscerate you. Hey. Okay, Solar Fide, the evisceration of the church, Sean. Maybe we'll go there. Slightly disturbing link, but go for it. 
<laughs> this is from Stronghold Games for two players only, roughly 45 minutes in play. Designed by Christian Leonard, who designed Fireteam Zero. He also designed 1960 and Founding Fathers with Jason Matthews, his co-designer here, who also designed Twilight Struggle and 1989. This is all about a game with the two players. One is playing the Catholics, the other are playing the Protestants, and it's during the schism of the church, as I said, and both players are trying to influence in the Holy Roman Empire to get them to declare their religion as the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. Each game is going to be played, with each player having a deck of 15 cards drawn from 45 cards overall in the box. There's a sort of starter set up 15 cards, which is recommended to you. Once you know the game, you can draft your 15 from the 45 to get going. So what are you trying to do? The game is played over 10 areas called circles, although the boards are square. They show areas of the Holy Roman Empire. And they're put out in a pyramid of 10 and the top three are flipped. And as others are scored, it will flip the ones below them until you've got to play with all 10 to finish the game, basically. And in those circles, it shows the current power base in that area, be it nobility or commoners. It's one of those two. And you're going to be able to influence how that goes. It's also going to show five territories on either side. And those are linked to whether the nobles or the commoners are in charge. And those territories are all going to show who's influenced them most at the time, be it Catholics, the Protestants, or they can be neutral. By playing cards, you're going to try and shift that power base around. And you're trying to have it so that all five territories on one of the two sides are all of your power. So I've got them all managed to be Protestant or Catholic. And the power is in the hands of that side. And then I'm going to be able to score that particular board. That is going to score me some victory points at the end of the game. So it's the cards that can drive everything you do, attempting to, to move the power base, flip things around, take over, possibly attack your opponent. There's a couple of other bits and bobs going on, like a disputation token, which you can move around. It'll score you an extra point if it's on a board when you win it. There are some persistent event cards you can put into play, which will stay in play until you play another persistent event card. The Catholics can do some military attacks. When you also you score a board, there are four decks of foreign influence bonus cards and they come with like a, a theme to each of them or an idea that this one will help you militarily, this one will help you that way, this one will help you the other way. And you draw one, you get that bonus for winning the territory. When the 10th territory has been won, the game is over. You can count up your VPs for little bonus tokens you've got and the territories you've been able to control and you will decide which way the Holy Roman Empire is going to go. Sean, Sola Fide. So I'll start with the looks. I mean, the theming's okay. Is it present? Very slightly, as in that they've married it up with the anniversary of these events in history. Other than that, there's no real theme in present. Now, I don't think there's much artwork present either. Very blocky, it's very beige. It's not appealing to the eye, or not to mine anyway, Rona. Oh, so much beige, Sean. The cards look like they're like the old version of St. Petersburg. Early 2000s, purely functional, not great colours. Just not impressed with the look of it whatsoever. They've taken Campaign Manager 2008 and I was hoping they'd fire it up with a bit of this struggle and it really matters. And oh, the presentation's bad. What also worries me is I played Campaign Manager 2008. You only had a 15 card deck and it felt terribly terribly limiting that you're setting yourself up for this whole game when you first choose these cards and then you can't react to what the other person plays they might play a card and you go oh christ i've got nothing i could do about that and they've done it again and you're still in this restricted tiny deck that is just 
feels so small and it feels like this is huge human history a, a massive thing in western history and they've reduced it down to such a tiny 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 size yeah i mean what i've written down is it just seems very blunt and there's little subtlety about it and it just feels like there's just simple take that choices and the as you just said and the opponent has to take it and then you react by doing the same back to somebody and it's it doesn't feel like there's any subtlety to what you're doing at all i move this cube and change it to a red cube cool i change this cube to a black cube okay I move this token across and change this to a red cube. Oh, gee, yeah. what, I'm not feeling the tapestry of human emotion, Sean. What would change that is if the cards were really interesting. Now, the two examples they give in the rule book are just what you said, Ronan. Exactly what you said. Now, whether that's just a good way of explaining that particular part of the rules, I don't know. The pictures of the cards, the text is on, in German. So that doesn't really give me any feel for what the cards are going to be like now. So if the cards have the subtlety inbuilt into them, then it might rescue the game to a degree, but I'm not hopeful. Also, Roland, in the rulebook, it says Solar Fide is mechanically simple, but gameplay is intense and exciting. Now, if you're having to put that in your own rulebook... You are excited. Don't forget you're excited while you play these cards. Don't forget that this is intense. And don't you dare forget that you're excited. It should come with an excitement warning in yellow and black on the front of the box. That would really persuade us. <laughs> oh, mate. Go on, tell me what you think. I think we all know. It starts off looking boring. Um, then you go into that drafting, which looks really laborious. And that looks like it could take half the game. And then you go into a game where there's no real avenues to explore. It's very blunt. Yeah, just doesn't feel like a thought-out process of a game to me, and it's going to be a trap. Yeah, I'm afraid they've taken a dull game. They've made it look duller, incredibly. They haven't improved the gameplay enough, and this just stays dull. Sorry, guys, this is a trap for me as well. Solar Fide, gutted. I had high hopes for that one. Okay, so one of the biggest for sure releases at Essen this year, and it's code names, pictures, Ronan. In sales, it's it's going to be on the beast, isn't it? Oh, Coming up to one, half one a million worldwide sales in less than a year for code names. Boom! Absolutely, just the success of the year by a, by a mile. Now, so we're going to go into pictures. It's still by Vlada Shvatil. It's still by CGE, and it's still playing two to eight players. So what is it? It's pretty much exactly as code names. It does what it says on the tin. Instead of words, it just brings in pictures. I'm not going to give much more than that, Ronan. You're, you're looking at pictures, and you're linking pictures together rather than linking words together for your teammate. Code names, pictures, Sean. It's code names with pictures. Yeah. So, yeah. do you prefer pictures or do you prefer words? I think the pictures would ha- have to be very, very clever in this to make it work at all. And I'm sure they will be. But I don't want the examples I've seen just look a bit clip-arty. Yeah, I did think, I think they were prototype ones that people saw a lot because some of the actual pictures have come out and they're a bit more than clip art. There's there's a little bit of it like a platypus and a dog lead and the Eiffel Tower in a jungle and stuff. They're not fully detailed. They're all black and white, but they're not the real basic ones I think you and I saw a couple of months ago. 
I just don't see how they'll have the depth that words, because you've got to have different meanings, you can have different context for words, and that's where I think the, the beauty of this is, is seeing what people sort of pull out. I was thinking of it in that way, but you were thinking of it a different way. Are you going to be able to do that with pictures? Is there going to be that same depth? And, yeah, I'm a little bit worried about that. Well, I think the two examples I can give you of games that work with pictures of that is Rory Story Cubes, whereby the pictures are really symbols and they're so simple you can always bring your own interpretation to them or the old standard dicks it where everyone interprets something different from each picture. I feel like you need to go to either end to get real genius on this and look, it's going to be a really good game but the way I'm talking about this is because I prefer the words. I prefer the links there. And that's the version I'm always going to prefer to play. But, but this is like a classic game, the classic system. It's going to work. It's going to be fun. It's not exciting me by any stretch. I'll end up playing it. I'll probably end up buying it at some stage, I'm sure. But it's just not exciting me like Codenames did. And I, right alongside with you, I will prefer, I think, the, the words than the pictures. Yeah, but I can't call it a trap because I believe it will be a very good game and I'll be happy to play it. So I'm going to say Treasure for Codename Pictures, but I would always prefer to play usual Codenames because I guess I'm a wordy sort of a person. I'm on the fence. Is it going to be a trap or is it going to be a treasure? You know what? I'm going to say for me it's a trap because <gasps> because exactly what you just said. But I just think I'm always going to prefer to play the words. If Codenames Pictures happens to be the, the copy that people pull out, I'm going to I'll go, okay, I'll play it. But if there's words beside it, I'm always going to say, well, can we actually play words? Because I think it's a more interesting game or it will be a more interesting game. So I'm going to say it's a really tentative trap, but a trap that I'll enjoy, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I think I do definitely want to eat that pudding and just see exactly how it's come yeah, through and whether sure. they've managed to do it. Because, you know, sure. they're one of those companies you've got to have a little bit of faith in, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Okay, Sean, another big name game from the last 12 months is getting an expansion. This is Seven Wonders Jewel Pantheon. It's from Repros Productions, 45-minute playtime, two players, obviously an expansion to Seven Wonders Jewel. The designers, huge names, Antoine Bowser and Bruno Cathala. Antoine Bowser, Seven Wonders, Ghost Stories, Takanoko, Hanabi, Bruno Cathala, Five Tribes, Psychedies, Abyss, Mr. Jack. So, I'm not going to tell you how to play Seven Wonders Jewel. I hope you know. If you don't know, you might not be that interested in the expansion, but you'll get a flavour of what the expansion adds quickly. When you play with Pantheon, so during Age 1, as you play, you're going to construct a Pantheon of five gods from 15 available, and they're going to be laid on a special board across the top of the boards you already have in Seven Wonders Jewel. The 15 gods, there's three each and five different Pantheons. From Age 2 onwards, you can invoke those gods and take them down to you and use their special powers, so they can be possibly a little bit more forward planning. The different pantheons, the, the divinities, as they call them, to not confuse them with a the name, correspond to different sections of the game. So there's like Rome for war, Greeks will help you in your civics, there's Egypt helps with wonders, there's commerce and there's science. When you're taking gods, you have an idea of where they're going to help you. The way you do it is in the first age, on five of the face down cards in a pattern, there's going to be five face down tokens drawn from ten. There's two of each of the divinities there. When a card with a token on gets flipped over, then you're going to flip over the face-down token on it. It's going to show one of these divinities. You're going to take the top two of three cards of that divinity, and you're going to take one, 
and you're going to add it to the Pantheon. Now, the only difference on the Pantheon where it goes is those that are placed nearer to you are going to cost you less money to invoke later on in the game, and those further away are going to cost you more money, and obviously the other way round for the other player. From age two onwards, you can activate a god, and you can actually do that instead of taking another action. You don't have to take a card to do it. You can get offering tokens, which are going to be face down on the board, and they will reduce the cost of paying for some of those gods. Now, I'll just give you a couple of examples of sort of things they can do. For example, there's Nisaba, who has a snake token, and you can use that snake token and put it on the, another player's science card, and that symbol now counts for you. Or there's Baal, who lets you steal a resource card and place it in your tableau. There's also Zeus, who can destroy any card from the tableau. There's that bolt of lightning from him. Ra, you can steal an unbuilt wonder from the other player. Or Minerva, you'll be able to put her token on the military board. And when the military token hits it, it stops. So you can prevent yourself from, from really getting smashed up at military with that Minerva. But only one off. That's an idea of what the gods can do for you. Some of the other things that it adds, instead of guilds in the third age, you're now going to have grand temples, which cost lots to build, but they will give you 5, 12, or 21 VP, depending upon how many of the three you've built. There's a couple of new wonders, which help reduce the cost of gods. There's three new science tokens. So if you have a science token, you can build any card that can be built from an upgrade for the cost of just one gold. That's one example of those. It adds a bit more to it, Sean. It messes it up a little bit. It gives you possibly some more strategy. Or oh, there's a bit more nastiness in there as well. Seven Wonders Jewel Pantheon. Right, so Seven Wonders Jewel, Ronan, is a game that I actually think is a very good game. But I didn't always enjoy playing it. I found it... It was quite nasty, but it was also... When somebody got ahead, it was very hard to peg them back, and they kind of sort of marched on. And I wasn't good enough to figure out a way to not, for that not to happen. And I certainly didn't put the plays in to figure it out. Now, this looks like it's going to fix some of those problems for me. Now, proof will be in the eating of the pudding, as you say. But it looks to me from afar that that might just happen. I think the tokens... They look like they're going to balance out some of those issues with the runaway leader. It's going to continue by balancing out the money with the offering tokens, and money's going to become a lot more important in the game. Now, the single one single thing that I like, and it's a really simple thing, is when you have to turn over that last card and it's going to go to the other player, now there's going to be an offering token on it, and you're going to get something too. I like that. Yeah, you could kind of get into that stalemate where you're doing everything you can not to flip a card over, especially in age one, because people can get their engine going. And now suddenly there's an incentive because you might just get the god that's going to help you out. You're right about you've got the ability now to break monopolies. If someone's got all the wood in the game, suddenly there is a god available who might let you steal one back and, and balance it up. And also absolutely it looks like money's going to be much much more important because you need it to invoke those gods and they can turn the game for you yeah coming into this one Rona, i wasn't interested at all i'd actually passed it by as a ignore on my essen list uh, shocking yeah well i knew i knew that natalie would be into it because she really likes seven mothers jewel but yeah i, was, I can't pass she's it got by. good taste in everything apart from men sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's been said before that's such a good game it's such a it good game a, I don't it know it's a good you. game but I just no it's not, such a good game but I, it's a great so game so many games I just didn't enjoy either because I 
was just on a procession to victory or somebody else was on a procession to victory and then flipping that nastiness and then I was just a little bit put off by it. But this has turned me right back around having a look at this, these rules and thank you for making me have a look at them because now all of a sudden I'm really interested. For me, it's a surprising treasure. Oh, well, I don't think it's as revolutionary as you seem to think it is. There's a couple of you know, science tokens or, or cards that can come in that might mess it up sometimes. I think it very much stays true to the feel of Seven Wonders Jewel, a game I absolutely adore. I'm glad it doesn't seem to mess up too much with it, and it seems to fit in seamlessly with more options. Total, total treasure. This will be mine. Okay, Ronan, we're going to go on to a company that is fast becoming one of those companies that you're eager to see what they're going to be bringing out each Essen. It's what's your game? It's almost like they're a revolution in Euro gaming, Sean. Oh, nice link, nice segue there. Because it is... <laughs> is it? Railroad Revolution <laughs> from What's Your Game, designed by Marco Canetta and Stefano Nicolini. Uh, it's two to four players. What is Railroad Revolution? Well, in the 19th century America, you are large companies looking to expand your rail networks across the land by laying track, constructing stations, and helping the local telegraph company to deliver their infrastructure. And each of you are competing to be the best at doing this. So each player is going to take an action per turn until the game ends. The actions all need a worker, and they are establish a station in a city that you are connected to. You are going to be able to build a railway track to connect more cities. I mentioned the telegraph company. You're going to be able to build a telegraph office to improve the telegraph company infrastructure. And you're going to be able to trade by selling off company assets to give yourself money. I mentioned the workers. These come in different colors, and the color changes their potencies for certain actions. Workers can be gained and can be promoted into managers to gain victory points. I said that you're going to expand your rail network. There is no blocking in this game, so you can all expand. Reaching a city first will increase your chance of building a station there first, and that's going to give you additional rewards. Building stations is going to get you more specialized workers. There are individual gold tiles in this one, and you're going to get bonuses for connecting telegraph tiles. Railroad Revolution, Ronan. How are you feeling about it? I hate train themes. <laughs> we always say that because we're hate train them. workers. I get that the development of the railways are interesting, but so many train games does there have to be? But okay, I do like What's Your Game. I don't think they're perfect, but I do like what they're doing with Euro games and that they're always looking for slightly interesting ways to work. It's not just a simple work placement. It's work placement where your workers, the colour they are affects it, but in a simple way. I like the way they present games. I like the way they tie things together. I think they're a good, solid company, mate. They are, but I actually find them really difficult to call how their games are going to work. There's always those little subtle things that happen in their games that you don't really pick out from afar, that you go, oh, okay, that was cool, that was cool. And this is no different. The sum of the parts is going to be more than that. I just know it is, but I'm struggling to work out how. 
Maybe, but this definitely feels like their simplest game that they've, they've put together. It definitely feels like they've tried to condense a lot of the ideas in their more sprawling Euros into this quite simple four actions. You choose what you do with them. This is definitely a step away from the complexity of Madeira or Nippon or something like that. Oh, yes, yeah, nowhere near those levels. But I think the complexity will be in choosing the right workers and promoting the workers at the right time and sort of harnessing your workforce in the right channel. So I, I'm not sure that's complex. I think, yes, it's choices. It's definitely thinking, but it's not complex. It's not five steps to promote that. It's I'm now going to promote this. No, no, the, the, the mechanism itself I don't think is going to be complex, but I think mastering what you're doing is where the, the, there's going I'm, to be... I'm going to call complexity. that depth rather than complexity. Okay, okay. I think they're going for depth in a simple system, which brings us back to what people traditionally called Euros. And I like it, Sean. I like what I'm seeing here. I do, I do. I'm not as down on railway games as you. I think I have played a couple of Arca. You couldn't like, be. <laughs> like I've played recently Railways of the World and I've thoroughly enjoyed my play of it so yeah I'm not quite as down as you are I don't hate every train game it just gets me off on the wrong foot and it's just <laughs> overused that's all you like rolling freight I do like rolling freight I can't defend myself here <laughs> I refuse to be reasoned to give any sort of a defence I just don't like it sometimes most of the time Almost all the time. But sometimes they persuade me otherwise. Railroad Revolution has persuaded me otherwise. I like it. It looks clean. It looks effective. It looks like everyone's clear on what they're doing. Possibly a little bit solitaire. There's a bonus for doing things first. Quite a handy bonus. But you you can still really do everything that you want to do. But I like that they've gone to a, a quicker, cleaner Euro. And this is definitely a treasure for me, Sean. Yeah, it's not the most excited I've ever been for a What's Your Game game. But it looks like it's going to be a really interesting game. You're absolutely right. I think there is going to be plenty of depth in those simple mechanisms. It's a treasure for me. Oh, it's been a treasure-laden first half. Oh, it's an interest. So we're going to kick off our second half with a big, big game in every sense of the word. This is a Feast for Odin from Cranio and Z-Man Games for one to four players, a two hour playtime. And it's from the heavyweight of board game design, Uwe Rosenborg, Caverna, Agricola, Patchwork, Liav. You probably know the rest. So what is a Feast for Odin? You are writing your own Viking saga. You're going to run your own Viking family or clan, and you're going to be exploring, farming, mining, hunting, emigrating, developing your land, whaling, and trading, all as these Vikings. You're going to paint the whole story. You play over six or seven rounds. You have a growing pool of Vikings, and on each turn, or to drive your actions, you're going to be doing worker placement 
with your Vikings. They're going to go onto a central board. There's a whole bunch of actions on there, but actually not that many, but they all come in four different variations. And the number of Vikings you put on a space tells you how powerful that action is going to be. It's going to be one, two, three, or four, but you do block a space once you go in there. So I could take the three Viking version of an action. Sean's then able to do the one to a four version one, but not that three one. Also, it is a Ruva Rosenborg game. At the end of each round, you're going to have to feed all the Vikings you have, and they become more expensive and need more food as time goes on. It's all driven by getting these good tiles. And what you're trying to do is get these good tiles somehow through all of your actions and place them on your home, on buildings you've built, on islands you've explored. And it's kind of got a patchwork thing whereby if there are areas you haven't covered over at the end of the game, it's going to cost you a rake of points to go with, if you don't expand anything, you just do your own home tile. If you didn't cover the areas, you'd lose 80 points. So everything's represented by these tiles. It's all about where you put them down. Now, the type of actions you have, and I'm not going to go through them all, are to get your animals on your farm to produce some kind of goods, some basic goods. Goods come in orange, red, green, or blue. And basically, the orange ones are the most basic, and they go up to blue, which are more versatile and cover more areas. So you, you can get basic ones from your farm. You can upgrade goods or trade for better types of goods. You can go mining for resources, which can help you pay for actions, get you weapons to help you hunt. But you're like going to be able to get goods with them again all about these goods and i say the word goods about 10 million times you can send boats out to do various things they can do special trades with basically foreign trade you can get them to emigrate to reduce the food cost of your clan they can go out raiding and pillaging and you can put ore and weapons on their boats to make that more powerful you can go hunting with snares you can get you can explore and gain a new board which will have income on there and different goods you can get from that new board but it's going to also be need to be covered. Otherwise, you're going to lose points if you haven't covered your new board. And that new board is going to represent an area the Vikings explored across the north. So they're going to go through like the Faroe Islands, the Shetland Islands, Greenland, Baffin Island, all the way down to Newfoundland. And tiles flip over, basically, and they become more valuable as you go on. But obviously harder to cover because you get them later in the game. Strong influence here of his other games. You get occupation cards and you'll be able to get more of those from your actions and also play them from your hand for actions and they're going to be one-offs or bonuses or powers for the game or ways to score points at the end of the game as standard occupation cards. The end of the game. You're going to get victory points for ships you've built, for Vikings you've emigrated, for buildings you've built, for your animals that you've got, for your occupations and for money that you have left over. You're going to lose points for all those uncovered spaces, basically that they're not covered. And when I'm talking about the goods, there are different ones of them, and they come in different shapes and sizes. So the basic orange and reds, the oranges are just little squares. The reds are going to be rectangular. And as you go up through greens and blues and even special ones you can get by going away, they come in all kind of funky bigger shapes and sizes that you're going to fit around and when you're fitting them onto your home house you get an income and there's a way of covering income spaces your income goes up there's also good spaces on there and this is the same true with the islands and if you surround those good spaces you're going to get the good as an income so it's about covering certain areas leaving certain areas open and spreading as much as you can across not to lose points at the end sean it's a hefty old game a feast for odin Yes, Ronan, it is another meaty old beast from the king of meaty old beasts, Uwe Rosenberg. Now, I'm not the biggest fan of that sort of area coverage and trying to cover spaces. And hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, wait, 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 wait. A second ago, you were dissing Seven Wonders Jewel. You're not about to dispatch work, <laughs> are you? 
I put up with it in Patchwork because Patchwork is such a good game. It's okay. It's not my favourite part of the game. I suppose it's, hot, <laughs> it's the entirety of the game. What, what, what was your favourite part? Counting buttons? <laughs> counting buttons. Nothing better than counting buttons. You ain't never yeah, seen a head being pa- shook as much as this one is shaking. Yeah, Patchwork, it was all really thematic. And in this one, the theming, you're just putting random things on your field. Not like you're covering them with certain things that make thematic sense. So, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of that particular mechanism. So, that bit, I agree with you. I can't really get in my head how these patches have anything to do with the theme and why you've got to cover all these things. But, and I thought you'd be super excited about this, it's a proper Viking theme. You are actually doing Viking things. Not a nonsense of chopping up bloody ships and putting them back together again you're doing the trading and the exploration and and forging relationships and also all the stuff back at home that drives that economy it's got the viking saga going on surely it has it has and yeah that that is definitely a plus but there's a couple of other things that are are niggling at me and i'm being really hypercritical on this one because you're not excited because you're always going about vikings we're not just raiders you're always going on about that it feels quite dry for me. So the boring side of the Vikings. Sort of. you're not, you don't feel like you're on the high seas attacking people and pillaging. I get what you mean. And yeah, that, that is definitely of interest. I wouldn't say I was excited by it. Another slight issue, and I'm, I'm judging this on very, very high standards. I'm judging it against Caverna. I'm judging it against Agricola. I'm judging it against Le Havre. Now, my other slight worry for this is there is a whole heap of options in here. There is so many things you can do. Now, I know they're grouped into how many workers you can place down, but there's still a lot of options. Is that going to leave it open to AP? Yes and no. (laughs) Can I skip the question? (laughs) It does seem overwhelming. I think that there could be a slightly easier way of presenting those actions to go and this is one action there are just four versions of it but i think they've done a really good job for me in the rule book in the presentation of making all those options accessible just on the number that there are i'm not saying it's an accessible game i'm saying considering you've got 60 or 70 actions you could possibly do they're all tied together and they make sense in terms of ap what it says in the rule book and what people are saying is that you get a starting occupation from a set of starters that nudges you in a direction and says, maybe you should think about this. So I'm hoping that from the occupations, you're going to get some idea of where you should be going and what you should be doing. And then in those first couple of games, although there is lots and lots you can do, maybe it will help you just focus on one or two to get your head around it. It's hard to defend, Sean. There is a lot going on. So you've got your home board and you're going to lose a whole heap of points if you don't cover that properly. But then there's additional things that you've got to cover. And just thinking like, are people going to play quite sort of negatively and turtle up? I can't see that many people are going to be really ambitious and take or go and take those islands and go and take those extra things that are going to need more things to cover them up. Well, not to start with, but I think obviously you're going to get better at the game as you play it. And then you're going to see that, hold on, if I get that income, I can just do a trade action and suddenly that square I'm getting becomes a big massive rectangle. And that island will cover itself in one or two turns and then suddenly I'm on a bonus there. 
It's hard, it's hard to judge, my friend, but he's got to put them in there for a reason. Just by having explored those islands, you get a whole rake of points as well. So they're not all negative to begin with. Right, I'm going to come at this from two angles, Ronan. If you are somebody who has... Obviously, you have to be a, a New Bay Regensburg fan, which I think a lot of people are. I certainly am. If you have explored Agricola, Caverna, Le Havre, Fields of Isla, just thirsting for more, this is your next step. But even if you've played most of those and you just want to give this one a go, because it's got that slightly different thing with the area coverage. Absolutely. For me, I've barely touched Caverna. I've barely touched Le Havre. I've played Agricola a handful of times. I've still got a lot of... Uwe Rosenberging to do so for me this isn't on my radar now I know it's coming back to my house because Natalie's buying it she's already said that it's, it's her number one choice but I'm not that excited about it for those reasons and for me it's a very very tentative trap boy oh boy oh boy oh boy I must be coming it from that other one of those two I wasn't convinced <laughs> I've been moaning about these loads of action euros all through these previews and this one i was like oh, it's just another one it's a step too far and i found the glorious love child of patchwork agricola Leav, and fields of Isla here and i found a fantastic rule book i found actions that all make sense and i am shocked you haven't got on board with this theme of creating your own viking saga and i am fully in there two axes buried deep in the wood of a feast for odin Cool. I'm sure I'm going to be playing it because Natalie's buying it, so I am hopeful that I'll be proved wrong. It's going to be it's it's going to be a headache in a box, mate. There's going to be a lot going on. <laughs> okay, so we are going to the golden age of sail, Ronan, and we are captains of that golden age. I could oh, 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 are. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, funnily enough, it's from Golden Age Games. It's designed by Aaron Groot, who, if he doesn't walk around saying, I am <laughs> I don't want to know him. <laughs> yeah, if you walk up the booth, you they all just go, we are Groot. <laughs> uh, Nick Yunsma. If he can't grow a flower out of the palm of his hand, I ain't happy. <laughs> if he can't protect me when I'm in a crashing ship by just growing around me, I don't want to know him. I don't want growth. to know him. <laughs> It's like Mirkwood Forest. <laughs> oh, God. Two to four players. So players are captains and you've got your own ship. And basically what you're trying to do in this game is you're trying to gather as much pepper, which is the most valuable commodity in the game, and you're trying to buy shares in companies with your pepper. If you have four shares, you're going to win the game. So what you've got to do to get this, well, you're going to be sailing around the ocean and one of your steps is going to be movement, and that movement is dependent on how many sails you have on your ship. You are going to be able to battle each other. If you go into the same space, you get the choice to battle each other. You can either board with crew or blast them with cannons. When you visit the islands, you can pick up other goods other than pepper, and you can use those to get pepper. And you can also upgrade your ship and repair your ship or rest your captain. Ronan, that's pretty much it. It's a very simple game. And let me throw this one out. It's a very, very watered-down version of Merchants and Marauders. Yes. It looks pretty. Do you, do you really think that the artwork is nice? I, uh, yeah, I do. I think it sort of suits the game. It's quite lively. It stands out from the crowd. It's well, I, I'm feeling like you don't. 
No, I just thought it was really basic. The people themselves just looked sort of half-realised and... Stylized, but I think quite cool stylized. You've got an issue with boards that show sea and islands during these previews. <laughs> what do you want them to do? The sea is I blue and mind. the islands are not. It's not so much the island itself. As I say, it's just that the actual people and the ship's not great. Yeah, maybe it is stylized, but I don't like it. Jar Jar. <laughs> I want you to imagine a scenario. So when you move into a space with another player, there can only ever be two in a space and you choose whether you attack them or not and then they choose whether they attack you back or not. All right? Now, here's, here's a version. Everyone plays as merchants and they just scoot around the place. How's that game going to go? <laughs> not very well. Not a lot going on in the game. You know, and if you don't fight each other, I don't know how you're going to make any excitement. I go there, I pick that up, I go there. Okay, cool. I've actually written down people must attack or it will be very dull. There we go. Nice. Uh, It's not just Merchants and Marauders light. It's like Nautilus light. Well, yeah, the actual, at least yeah, you had a 3D ship that you could play with and you could pretend you're being a grown-up playing with the sailing ship and putting things on it. Here it's all represented by cards. And also, you draw a card at the end of each round when you just stop in any sea space. You can add them to your crew, and you can add them to your cans, you can add them to your sails, whatever. And it, it just feels very random as if, well, I've drawn a load of crew, so I might as well go and do a boarding attempt at someone. The game's driving me somewhat. And then I feel like that pirate cove at the centre where you are able to go in, take control of it, you get a spyglass, and then whatever you turn the spyglass to. So if somebody goes to get a certain type of good, you just help yourself to that good. Mm. I felt that was kind of crowbarred in because they maybe thought that the game wasn't being mean enough. Did you hear that Starfleet made a bunch of replicators in the uh, shape of spyglasses? <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, they must have done, because how the hell else does that work? How are they going to get them, yeah? <laughs> what are you taking? What? Oh, I, 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 you're on that island! I'm on this island, what are you doing? How are you, you sending off your steely monkeys to get it? I can see that pineapple, therefore one of them is mine. <laughs> this pineapple is small. That pineapple is far away. What the hell's going on? <laughs> It goes on the part of inoffensive and bland. But how how does two players work? I just have a little sail around and I pick up one of these. Hello over there. Hello over here. Oh, I won. (laughs) Okay, I was going to win. That's how it works. How does it last three hours as well? Three hours? Where'd that come from? 60 to 180 minutes is the playing time. Uh, How, How does that happen? Who played this? That involves two hours of arguing about how that spyglass works thematically. <laughs> At least an hour of trying to get it out of somewhere. <laughs> get out of here, man. Is it like I say, there's nothing wrong with the game. I'm sure it's fine, but fine ain't good enough. Trap. I've got Merchants and Marauders, a far superior game with all the same mechanisms, but all done way better. Looks way nicer. So I'll stick with that. Thank you very much. Good effort, but it's a trap. I am staying on an aquatic theme, Sean. Oh, you young aquatic gentleman. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I like to hang around ports. Does that count? (laughs) This is 
Nautilian from Z-Man Games for one or two players. One player, really, like they all are. 25 minutes. It's from Shaddy Torbane. If I tell you what he designed, if you don't know, you'll get an idea of what this game's like. He's the designer of Honorim, Sylvian, Castellion, Erbion. All set in the same universe. All really single-player games with kind of a two-player rules, but really single-player games. They all last under an hour. He's been coming out of different ways. He started with card games. He went into tile laying last year with Castellian. This time he's coming in with a kind of a tile layer again, but also a dice roller. So, you must race your submarine, the Nautilian, to the Abyss to face the Dark House before the Phantom submarine he has sent out reaches the Happy Isles. Are you with me? Because I'm happy in an island. (laughs) How's this going to work? In the basic game, you're going to lay out a trail of 36 crew tokens. That's four each of nine different types. The Phantom submarine, the baddie, starts at one end, down by the abyss, and the Nautilian starts at the other end, at the Happy Isles. You roll three dice, and you have to assign each of those dice to the Dark House, to the Phantom, and to the Nautilian. Now, the first one you do is give it to the Dark House. If you give them a three or a four, I believe four is the highest number on the dice, although we haven't actually seen them yet, but I believe so. Then you're going to have to discard a token. Now you start with four tokens and you can use the tokens to cast spells. I'll come back to how they work. Then you give a dice to the Phantom Submarine and it moves along the trail towards the Happy Isles and the tile it lands on, it eats and it's out of the game. The Nautilian will then get the last die and that will move as far as that shows and wherever it lands, you will take a crew tile. The crew tile you take, you place it in your submarine, and the first one you can place it anywhere, but the submarine has got a pattern on it of air ducts that connect, and you have to place them together so that each one is connected by an air duct to each other one. So there's a little bit of pattern, or even a little bit of patchwork slash feast for Odin there. Just a little hint of it, that's all. If you don't want to place it in your submarine, you've already got one of those, because you only can have one of each of the nine types of crew, you take it to power spells. So the spells are quite easy. They cost one or two tokens. They let you re-roll dice. They let you choose the face of a dice, or they let you swap any two tokens around on this trail between the Happy Isles and the Abyss. If you arrive at the Abyss with a full nine crew, that's one of each of the nine types, you can only hold nine crew, before the Phantom arrives at the Happy Islands, you have defeated the Dark House and you have won. If anything else happens, you have not won. For variety, as always in this, he's put in, well, there's six different submarines for starters, so there's different placement changes as you're going, and they're rated for how hard they are to complete. He's also got some expansions, for example, there's mages, you can collect mages that they get added to the trail, put mage and crew pairs together, and you can re-roll dice, but you also have to have three mages when you get to the end, or you can't win. There's the other way around, there's mercenaries you can add to the trail, you need to collect them, but the phantom sub will be collecting them as well, and they'll be adding crew together, and once you and the Phantom Sub meet each other in the middle of the trail, usually you hop over each other in the base game. This time you're going to fight. If the Phantom Sub has got more harpoons from these mercenaries than you have, it's going to destroy you and you've lost automatically. You can mix and match those in. There's other ones. There's like reefs that mess with the path. And you've got to stop on them and things like that. Uh, lots of different ways of mixing it up. Again, it's the usual shaddy torbo way of doing things. I know, I know, Sean, shaddy Torby doesn't make bad games. And I know that you're a heathen, so crack on. Okay, so it's still got the horrible artwork. No, it's no, still no, 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 no. Happy still artwork. Still got the insane theming. Happy theming? But 
This is the first game of the Omniverse series so far that I haven't wanted to hop off your head. Well, I don't know whether to be happy or sad. <laughs> Deny me my right to shout at you annually about an Omniverse game. Bit worried you've been hopping things off my head and I haven't noticed, but that wouldn't be the first time. And and you're so wrong about the art, I, I can't believe we can even discuss it anymore. Sylvia's still lodged somewhere. <laughs> I wondered what was rattling every time I shook my head. Let's talk a bit more about the game, Ronan, and stop talking about games poking out of your massive cranium. I think that although this game is light, uh, it does have minimal choices, but I think there are definite choices there. And that is what's providing me with some interest here. And it's the race mechanism tying it all together that's interesting me as well. It's what he always does. He, he adds that sort of tantalising pressure off. Whoa, look what you can have now. Oh, yeah, sure, it might cost you something down the line, but look what you can have now. And you fall for it the first couple of times you play, and then you, later on you go, oh, why did I do that? Why did I let him do it to me again? This looks like exactly what he does in his other games. Tempting you, Sean. Tempting you to make poor long-term decisions. Well, indeed, indeed. And I think that one of my usual worries is about the dice rolling. Is fortunate dice rolling going to affect the game? But I think that there's enough with this that unless you roll freakishly bad or freakishly well, there's always going to have that sort of inbuilt catch-up mechanism with it and interesting choices just with the dice themselves. Yeah, and I think the dice are one two two three three four dice so he's mitigated against the luck there as well so and you've got the spells you can cast although as always in these games you use those sparingly and i love that actually at the start almost any move is good so you can pick up any crew member and that'll help and like all good games there's an arc and it narrows down as you go on and you get to the point where you're going oh none of these are any good for me yeah and it's something that he always does as you said but the expansions as well, they're going to let you tailor the game to the way you want to play it. They all add something different, just a little tweak, nothing, nothing massive. But you'll be able to make your own game almost and play the way you want to play it. There's so many of them in there. It's just standard for his games, mate. I think you're becoming a convert to the Shaddy Torbay way. He puts in expansions, he changes up the way you got to think, you think you know the game, then you put something small in there, and suddenly those decision spaces changing. They're not earth-shattering, but they're fantastic little packages if you ever want to solo game. And they're not like a lot of solo games that are four hours long. You can get them done in half an hour, you can get them done in a lunch break, you can get them done while someone's off doing something else, maybe in a coffee shop. While they're very portable and handy in that way. We're converting you, Sean. Yes, yes you are, yes. I am going to go with this one as a treasure. It's my first Omniverse treasure. And yeah, I may even pick it up. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun with a little bit of thought involved. I'm shocked, but I'm pleasantly shocked. I reckon this time next year you're going to be raving about how great the artwork is too. And this is obviously clearly I'm a big fan of his work. A big treasure for me. And that's Nortilion. Ronan, we're off on a quest. Are we, Sean? What kind of a quest is this? Going on a war quest. But Crevegnor, look at him. He's huge. <laughs> but Gublik, I'm your brother. Or. I'm going to use my neck to break the noose. <laughs> Random <laughs> no, this... film references. <laughs> yeah. 
This isn't, this isn't a game about a random 80s film called The Barbarians, maybe? <laughs> the kids are very twins or something. I don't even know. They were awesome. <laughs> they were awesome. This is WarQuest from Mr. B Games, designed by Glenn Drover, Age of Empires fame, for two to four players. What is it? It is a game in which players are warlords in the fantasy world of Myrathia. Welcome to Myrathia! You are seeking to reunite the fractured land. What you are going to do is recruit a range of troops, from elves, dwarves, orcs, etc., the usual tropes. You're going to be trying to complete quests and drive the chaos back. You're going to be looking to take cities and areas, and you're going to try to become the ruler of Myrathia. What do these areas do? Well, cities are going to generate you money. The outskirts are where you're going to recruit troops, and they're going to be specific areas in which you can recruit specific troop types. You have secret objectives, control areas and defeat enemies, etc. You have a quest card, which is going to direct you to a certain area on the board, and once done you're going to obtain a new one you can buy power cards which are magic items and spells they're going to help your armies in some way and there are event cards these are the timer of the game and they change something in the game it could even be that the whole race is wiped out of the game the battle is done with dice there's a slight variety in how you attack archers fire then units can be routed you have differing attack and defense values on the different troop types and the spells and the magic items are going to affect the battle ronan i put to you our 13 year old selves would be all over this oh my days oh yes we would have cried ourselves with excitement to sleep with it about this in the day who broke into my head and stole my dreams <laughs> obviously glenn drover Clearly he did. Do you know what? I don't even care how this game plays. I'm going to probably like it more if it's got some flaws. <laughs> I'm serious, hey. man. Someone just made my dreams come true. Look, look at the board. Look at the map, Sean. It's a right map. Then. I'm now going to dash your dreams. No. They might not have copies in essence. There'll be things dashed. There'll be things dashed of floors and walls. <laughs> I'll go into the role-playing hall. I'll grab myself an axe and I'll come back to that stand. <laughs> this is no laughing matter. It isn't a laughing matter. I'm laughing, laughing at a pure nervous tension because they might not have copies out of the girl. Why are they going to do that to me, man? <laughs> Why are they oh, going to do it to me? No. I just want war quest. That's all I want in life. Right. <laughs> they got to be like that. Here's the plan. We hire a boat, we pirate the ship that it's on, we steal copies and bring them home. This is it. We've got this. We've nailed it. Where do we find the boat? <laughs> that will hold the two of us. I've got one issue. I've got, I've got an issue as well. No, I've got a bad issue. There's elves in it. I'm never buying any elves. I don't care how good they are in battle. I don't care that they add to your ranged attack. I'm not interested. No, no elves. I hate elves. You and elves, you elvist. Are you? Is it because you're racially opposed to being half dwarf? Only my legs. That's very unkind. 
Because they're so emo. You and your elves. Right, Ronan. I have a, a one slight issue with this. One I'm slight interested. issue. I'm not interested. I'm not listening. I know you. I know you. The map. It is very good looking. It's a beautiful looking map. I don't know if it's functional because it's very, very busy. You're bringing me to a state of high dudgeon here. <laughs> Can I say anything about this game without you getting into high dudgeon? Not the map. 13-year-old <laughs> Ronan would walk into Waterstones, look in the front cover of a book, and if there was a map with stupid names, that book was going to be awesome. Warquest has got a map with stupid names. This game is going to be awesome. <laughs> You're a bad person. But we're basically 13 at this point. It's got quests. It does have quests. It's got conquer cards that tells you where you need to conquer. I, you know what? The, the thing that got me was the making up your own army, picking and choosing, having to travel to recruit them. <gasps> oh, my God. I'm dancing. My head is wiggling. My arms are going. <laughs> Front. And rear rank, Sean. Front and rear rank! Front and rear rank. And it actually plays out really quickly. It's not laboured at all. It's just like, boom, here, have a dice roll like that. You lose those. Boom, okay, I lose them. Okay, they, they retreat. They stay back. Boom, it's all done. In a slightly more measured comment, there's a great system for knowing how strong the attack and defence is for each type of figure. There's little nubs, as they call them, little notches at the front. If there's two notches, its attack strength is two. On the back, if there's one notch, its defense is one. That was noted. That was noted. Very good. Sweet. Do you know why? Because your eyes will be so full of tears at the excitement of playing this that you won't be able to tell it otherwise. (laughs) It has to be something tactile. (laughs) I'm so happy. Oh, I just did a quest. And the event cards, when they can just wipe out a race. Like, the elves might disappear, Ronan. Yeah, I'm going to print 30 of them. <laughs> you can hire different lieutenants and they can come on quests with you. And you can get spells and magic items. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> please be Edson, please be Edson. Oh, 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 oh. I think we've summed it up, Ronan, but do you want to just clarify for us? It is a treasure as fine as the crown of Thrarapia and the scepter of Gravegnor. Treasure. It's my Rathia's finest treasure. And if it is in Essen, it's coming home with me, even if I have to mug someone on the way out that got the last copy. I feel it's like me, Sean, his bedroom, closed door, no one leaving for four days. Back to the good old days, Sean. I don't think our lungs could take it these days. <laughs> we're more pungent or we're older? I don't know, both. Pungent and old, yeah. Nice. Okay, shall we move on? Let's move on. Let's Away move. from the glory that is Warquest. Woohoo! Conan the Destroyer soundtrack in the background. Dum, dum, dum. Anyway, our penultimate game is... Argo. This is from Flatline Games for two to four players. Takes around 90 minutes. It's from the design team of Bruno Faduti and Serge Leger. Bruno Faduti, famous for Citadels, Raptor, Ink and Gold, many, many, many other titles. Serge, equally as gloried, Shadows Ever Camelot, Mare Nostrum, and many more. So in this, aliens have invaded a space station, the space station Argo, in fact. Players represent people on that station 
and they are competing to get their five figures to escape pods before the others get there and without allowing aliens to eat too many overall of, of all of the characters that are on this station. You start on a limited board. As you go on each turn, you reveal a tile. The tile may have an alien on it and it may have a special power and you add it to the grid then you can move one of your five unique characters and each of the unique characters each have different powers. Now the rooms of character limits. So if you decide to move one of your characters and it pushes into a room and that extends the number of characters in there above the limit, you're then going to get to push one of the characters there onwards out of the room and you can do it to yourself, you can do it to other characters, you can push a character onto an alien. Now the alien might eat that character or... There's a certain individual power, the marine, you can push a marine onto an alien, and that marine will kill an alien when it moves onto it, although an alien will kill a marine when the alien moves onto it. So basically, whichever attacks wins. Other characters don't put them near aliens, they'll get eaten. But you're going to score points for doing all these things. You're going to score a point for every time you have an alien eat another player. You're going to score a point for killing an alien in some way. But you're going to score two victory points every time one of your characters makes it onto a shuttle and that shuttle escapes. Generally, it's an alien being next to a shuttle, which is occupied by at least one character, is going to trigger that shuttle going because that's it. The alien's at the door. It's time to just press that red button and go no matter who's on there. You have other special powers like you have a robot character and aliens will just ignore the robot. There's explorers and they can move twice so that can cause lots of pushing and moving around. It sounds like it's got a lot of theme, Sean. It's got the whole sci-fi eating each other thing. But that could be quite deceptive because it's actually an abstract movement game. And it's much more about pushing the characters around the tiles than it is rolling a bunch of dice and seeing who wins a shootout. Yeah, I was quite interested in the theme, actually. I thought it kind of had a fallout sort of thing where you wake up in the shelter, you don't know what's happened. That was the kind of vibe I was getting. Then obviously bringing the aliens, which changes it up a little bit. Then it became apparent that it was all fairly like deterministic. The, the theme wasn't really leeching into the actual game itself. And it does become quite abstract. How do you feel about this balance between the aliens and the players this idea of it it seems a little bit off kilter to me yeah i didn't actually mention it there but the aliens can win the game so every time any character dies the aliens move up on the score track if if they kill too many characters the aliens win and no one wins now i am not a fan semi-co-op sean what i find in this sort of semi-co-op where there's sort of like a a teeter and a balance there's two issues Firstly, I don't care until we get right to the tipping point of losing. So I'm just going to try and kill you as quick as I can. Secondly, if I'm losing on points, there's nothing to stop me doing that final kill with an alien and just trashing the game for everyone because I've lost anyway. So Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've got that written down, Ronan. It's, but my first query was if one player is too aggressive initially, takes out a few too many aliens... Did the others sort of have to take that decision to either lose the game individually or tank the game and everyone loses? Not really a choice there. And if it's obvious, as you just said, who's winning, the obvious choice for everybody else, tank the game. I just don't see how this game works. I was actually really quite liking it. I was getting a bit of a Theseus vibe about it. 
of that deterministic movement with the theme and being quite vicious and setting each other up and using special powers. Uh, Thesis has got Mancala theme, but that was what I was feeling. And the whole semi-cop thing, I, I wonder even why it's in there. Why don't you just let aliens eat as many characters as they want to? And whoever scores most points wins. Any thoughts? Why, why even the semi-co-op, Sean? I don't know. Maybe because this was in development for 10 years, which is a rather long time to be in development. Now, maybe they have realized that when you are sort of moving the aliens, so a player would have to move the aliens unless they put an AI in, and then maybe it was just too easy and everybody just got munched. I don't know. Um, maybe that wasn't happening and they decided to shake it up rather than invent an AI for the aliens. So, Ronan, how do you think the looks of the game? From what I've seen, it, it doesn't look very polished. In terms of the physical components or the gameplay? the physical components I actually think they look really good I like the tiles they're really simple clear iconography I think the models look fantastic and they're all quite separate from each other you can see that's a robot that's a a marine carrying a big massive gun that's a slimmer explorer I actually really like the look of the game Sean because it has to facilitate you making decisions and that whole thing of being able to tell what everything is I suppose it needed to be abstract, and as you said, it just needed to facilitate what you're doing. I I don't think it is abstract. I think it's clear. Its characters are represented by minis, aliens are represented by minis, and the space station's tiles. I'm I'm surprised you think it is that abstract. I thought that the uh, tiles themselves, they look so generic, just there's no character to the tiles, and... Yeah, the minis looked okay, but I just felt like the, the rest of it... Oh, really you're, a, you're a curmudgeon on this one. I am a curmudgeon. I'm, a, I'm taking your mantle this week on this show. Oh, <laughs> very miserable about things. Oh, well, do you want to sum up on Argo then? Again, I think we've got a direction you're going in. Yeah, I just don't think the, the game works. It was in development for 10 years. Yeah, that screams that they've had problems with it, and... Maybe they haven't quite ironed out all those problems. I, I just don't think it works, so it's a trap for me. I like to think there's enough there with the different character powers. When the space station spreads out, you've got to get past any aliens that are around. That This one is definitely worth a play for me, and it sneaks into the side of treasure. And that's Argo from Flatline Games. Ooh, interesting, interesting. Okay, so we're going to take to the sky now, and we're off on visiting some airlines, Ronan. Or creating airlines. Or creating airlines, indeed, in the 1960s, with Golden Egg Games, designed by Elad Goldstein, and plays two to four players. You are a 1960s emerging airline, and you're trying to become the best in the world. To win the game, you're going to need to build new airports... You're going to build planes, you're going to improve existing planes and construct support buildings. All the while you're trying to deliver passengers all over the globe efficiently. On a turn you're going to play from a hand of cards and each card has a main action and four global actions. The main action is a one-off and it tends to be more powerful, but the players can use as many global actions as they have planes. A central board has a rotating circle representing the globe in which will have passengers in five colours matching destinations around the edge. 
The aim of the game is to use the cards to build bigger and better planes, which are actually plastic customizable planes, construct the buildings that will make it easier to transport the passengers, or score more for doing so, and achieve the three randomly drawn objectives, which are going to be points for the most, the second, the third, etc. That's a rough outline of Airlines Ronan. Now, any game in which you get to put together actual plastic bits of an actual jetline and put little meeples in their shitty passengers, that's a pretty cool little hook. It's pretty awesome. Completely unnecessary, but mm. it is pretty <laughs> awesome. Fantastic. Yep, yep, I'm with you there. I'm not sure that we can be not okay with Vikings dropping up ships, but okay with pulling apart airliners and chucking extra bits of fuselage in the middle. First class needs to be chucked in at some point. <laughs> so that's cool. I love the box art. I kind of like the presentation. Got the idea of this globe spinning around. The fact that you call it a globe and it actually rotates. That's all kind of groovy that he's got the little hook set to pull you in, hasn't he? He always does for me. This is my issue. Golden Egg Games always have that little hook that pulls me in. They did it with City Council. They did it with Prime Time. But there's always just something not quite right when you get down to playing it. Something just doesn't work. It's just like it should do. I feel like the Golden Egg is slightly too runny. <laughs> like the games just come across as really good ideas very slightly undercooked I'm afraid I think it's cool that those goals change like you said there's three different goals for each game but there's quite a limited choice and they're all very similar you're going to have a building goal at most airports gets points or whatever you're going to have two other goals from the same categories there's not a wide variety in both what you can do and what you can score in the game. And, oh, but... Yeah, and I, I think you're also kind of reliant on getting sort of almost fortunate synergies with, with the cards. If you happen to get the two or the three things that work nicely off the back of each other, happy days. If those cards don't come out for you, then you're probably not going to win the game. I, I watched the Rado run through of this and that became apparent even in that to me. Well, I forgive you for watching, Rado. <laughs> the fact that the cards are multi-use, again, it's, it's one of those hooks that doesn't quite follow up. Because like you said, some of them do different things. But when you've got one of the options of the cards of just score a point, it kind of points out that all the other things maybe aren't that interesting. And the idea of multi-use cards is great. The execution, in this case, like a lot of the other things, just seems a bit flat. The fact that the globe spins every turn as well. So you, well, it spins a certain amount depending upon the cards played. So it's going to be quite hard to plan as to what passages you're getting because yeah. your cards to take what colour of passages you can pick up. And There's a bit of luck in that as well, I fear. Yeah, but there's also that sort of negative side where if you've got nothing better to do and somebody's waiting to deliver a passenger, why not move it on two spaces so they can't do that? Stuff like that. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, they just always sounds like a really nice idea there's always good ideas in there i like the fact that you get more of those global actions per plane that you have i like the idea of that but i'm not sure the the execution as you said would just hold enough water for me 
Yeah, I think we're tickling around the uh, the same area. It's it's just a trap. It's not quite for me. It doesn't offer enough variety. It doesn't turn to turn as well as game to game. It seems a little bit too luck driven. And even with the advanced variant, I'm not sure there's anything to truly deliver on the promise of airlines. So it's a trap for me, Sean. I'm usually just fall on the side of treasure with these games because they do lure me in with the pretty and the ideas. He's a good ideas man, is Elad Golsi. I don't know, maybe just that little bit of playtesting or something just to get them past the finishing line. But it's 84 times bitten (laughs) once shy. I'm going to say this one finally for Golden Egg Games is a trap. Airlines has been grounded. <laughs> Didn't. Sean, that's another dozen games dissected in some cases, unfairly berated. How are we feeling? Are we getting there? It's getting closer. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. You're brightening up and I'm getting more miserable. And I'm the one that's going. What is happening? I, I'm not entirely sure. I maybe am brightening up at the thought of how many of my games you've got to carry. Have <laughs> <laughs> you notified British Airways? <laughs> Don't we have to tell them every time you fly? Because of, you know... That thing. Well, no, no, they just drag me behind in the ding. <laughs> it's a fair old rope. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Thank you very much, Sean. Thank you very much, Ronan. Uh, we will have at least one more show of previews coming your way. Don't forget that Sean will give you some live coverage from Essen itself. And then immediately the week after, we're going to be popping out one or two shows with regards to having played some of these games. So those opinions might actually be worth some weight, Sean. Well, let's not push it. As much weight as any of our opinions are ever worth. <laughs> and I uh, just, just want to remind everyone, at 2 o'clock on the Thursday of Essen, I am going to be in the Dice Tower booth with my wife Natalie. We'll both be wearing Game Pit t-shirts, so please do come and say hello if you're in the area. If you don't want to say hello, just throw something at him. Hop something off my head. Doink, Sylvian. <laughs> Sylvian. <laughs> this, is, this is actually I'm going to always remember episode 73 the day I turned you over to the Omniverse first Omniverse that's ever been a treasure you, know, you don't need friends alright you just need the <laughs> Omniverse see us out Sean yes right and we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network go to the Dice Tower itself and the Dice Tower Network for gaming reviews opinions and all manner of things all about board gaming if you wish to download our episodes go to Podbean Stitcher or iTunes if you want to contact us we are on gamepitpodcast.gmail.com we also have a board game geek guild please ask us any questions you have there or email us and we also have a facebook page a twitter page and an instagram page all at game pit podcast thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon music by the arab